Good morning, Chapel Hill. It's great to be with you. I have uh, received so many uh, well wishes regarding the uh, little family life section regarding Rachel that I just have to go off script for a moment because if there's any group here uh, that knows her, it is you. I, I was really, I was thinking about it just now. She's been gone for nine years. And, uh, and so, uh, but if there's a group that she remembers, if it's a group that was a part of her life, it's probably mostly represented in this uh, service. I'm curious, how, how many were th- there way back 25 plus years ago when she was baptized in the chapel? Anyone? Look at that. So I, I just want to thank you for keeping your vows. You promised that you would help us to raise her in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You promised that you would love and pray for and encourage her, and so here we are. And uh, I'm very grateful for your faithfulness to those baptismal vows, and uh, thank you for your well wishes. Pray for her this week. It's a very scary thing to get up in front of all those people and uh, preach, and uh, I bet you'll do just fine. Last week, we launched into the uh, the, the, really the final section of the book of Romans up until now for chapters 1 through 11. Uh, it is really a, 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 almost a seminary class on, on Christian doctrine, isn't it? Uh, Paul is teaching us in great detail uh, what it means to be a Christian. But in these coming chapters, starting with chapter 12, he teaches us what it means to live like a Christian. What it means to take all that we've heard about in chapters 1 through 11 and begin to put them into, into action and to live the life that God intended for us to live. Live the, the good life that God intends for us. Last week we started with just two verses, didn't we? But it's two verses that were really worth just kind of stewing in for a moment. And Paul was sharing how all of ourselves ought to be presented to God in worship. First of all, our bodies. Remember, present our bodies as a living sacrifice, he says. And the language there literally means our physical body parts, our hands and our feet and our eyes and our mouth. He says, everything you have, offer it up to the Lord. Not as a dead sacrifice, not as a a blood sacrifice, as a life sacrifice. The way you live, may it be an honor and a glory to God. And then he said, but there's another part too. He says, don't be conformed to this world. Remember the jello? You have no idea the work that my mother went through to get that jello. We spent like 50 bucks on jello because she kept putting in extra jello and non, uh, non-flavored gelatin and so forth to make sure it wobbled correctly and didn't collapse. So you have no idea. I made the mistake, by the way, of disposing of it in the toilet in the vestry. Indeed, it was a bad move. I thought a couple of flushes and that baby would be gone. Oh, no. Plunger city, baby. Plunger city. If anyone came in there afterwards, they were going to be very frightened of what might have died down there. So anyway, the jello, the jello. He says, don't be conformed to this world, but rather be transformed. How are we to be transformed? By the renewing of our mind. So Paul jumps right in by saying, listen, all that you have is going to be lived to the glory of God. The way that you live with your body parts, the things you do, but also the way you think body and mind. He continues with that same theme as we continue on into chapter 12, but this time he reverses order. And so I want you to listen now. It's going to be first of all the mind and then the body. It's taken from Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. Listen to the word of the Lord. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, 
and the, the, each member, these members uh, do not all function in the same fashion, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace that has been given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads in zeal, the one who does acts of mercy in cheerfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Holy Spirit, would you please take these words that are your word and make them come to life for us, especially as we're talking about what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. May we leave this text more acutely aware of the way that we are connected as never before, for we ask it through Christ our Lord and all of God's people said. How many have been to Greece? Ah, a lot of you. One of the most important sites in Greece is the temple complex up in Delphi. Right? And the uh, kind of the high point of that area is the temple that is built dedicated to the god Apollo, and it's right on the, the mountain, on the slopes of Mount Parnassus. Um, here's some pictures of it. Um, this, is, this is a really quite a spectacular place, and it was renowned in ancient times for being the place where people would go to receive prophecies from an old woman who resided there who was called the Sibyl or the, the Oracle. And she was believed to bring prophecies from the god Apollo to anyone who wanted to know the mind of God. Ironically, though, if you were to look at the foundation stone of that temple that was dedicated to knowing the mind of God, you would discover these two Greek words, know thyself. You ever heard that expression? Know thyself. Socrates would go on to expand upon that in his teaching when he said that the unexamined life is not worth living. Know thyself. And I think the Apostle Paul would agree with what Socrates and the unknown Delphic oracle had said so many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before. Uh, After telling us in verse 2 that we must be transformed in our living by the way that we think, by the renewing of our mind, he kind of doubles down on that idea with this phrase, which I recited for you earlier. He says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more of himself than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Uh, This is one of those moments where the English doesn't quite do it justice because actually in the Greek for this text, the word think appears four times. So on the heels of saying, "Be, be renewed in your mind, transformed by the renewal of your mind, the very next verse he says, think, 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 think. Think, 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 think. He says, I'm not kidding. You've got to be renewed in your thinking. And notice the very first thing he tells us to think about, which might come as a surprise. He tells us to think about ourselves. That might shock us. We might, we respond, we might tend to respond, do we really need to be more encouraged to think about ourselves more than we already do? We might be asking, to, to, do we really need to become more self-absorbed than we already are as human beings? I was reading this last week that some of our, some healthcare professionals have proposed a name for a new mental illness that they are diagnosing. And it is called, the name they're suggesting is called, I'm not kidding you, selfitis. 
self-itis. Now, you, you, you ain't seen nothing yet here. Uh, the self-itis, they say, is an addiction to taking selfies with your cell phone. I know, it blows your mind, right? But apparently there are so many who are snapping hundreds of cell phone images of themselves every single day that it has become an addiction. And they're calling it selfitis. I'll bet there are fewer of us in this group that suffer from selfitis. But is this obsession with self really that new? You all remember old Blue Eyes. Remember what his anthem was? I did it my way. I did it my way, right? More recently, uh, Burger King, that arbiter of all that is right and good, has invited us to have it your way. But now it has apparently been replaced. Did you know this? Have it your way. Now they have changed it. Their motto is now going to be, be your way. Be your way. Really, is there, it could be much more pretension than that. Apparently, the Burger King way of life is more significant than just deciding whether you're going to have mayo on your, you know, whatever. And of course, the, um, the soft drink that we choose is what ultimately helps define us as human beings, as we are reminded in, in this uh, video. Whether I'm right or whether I'm wrong, gotta be me. See the fulfillment on her face? <laughs> now, now she's a pepper. You, you watch these TV ads and you realize how many of them want us to think, wow, I'm so great. I really am the center of the universe. It is all about my taste and my preferences and my wishes and my desires and, and my opinion. It really is all about me. And the Apostle Paul warns us. He says, I want you to think of yourself with sober judgment. He says, I want you to not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Wow, if the world could take just that piece of advice. If the world could take just that piece of advice. If the politicians in our nation could take just that piece of advice and not think of themselves more highly than they ought to think, what difference would it make? Isn't it interesting that Paul's starting point for an exposition of this transformation by our mind being renewed. The starting point is an attack on what? Pride. The ancient church had a a list of seven things that they called the seven deadly sins. They were lust and gluttony and greed and sloth and wrath and envy. But every time that one that was considered the, the worst of the bunch was what? Pride. The King Jimmy version of Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goeth before the fall. I've always preferred that translation. I know it, it talks about it leads to destruction. But I like goeth before the fall. And what the, the proverb writer is saying is those, those with inflated egos, those with an inflated estimate of themselves better watch out because that big head of yours is going to throw you out of balance and you will fall headlong like Humpty Dumpty. 
Our pastors will tell you that when we have our times of mentoring together, there is a theme that I pound into them. With the terrible dropout rate of pastors, the terrible failure rate of pastors uh, in, uh, in, this, in this culture of ours, I, I, I tell my folks there are two things that will take you out faster than anything in ministry. Pride and sex. Pride and sex. If you can keep your ego down and your zipper up, the odds of retiring happily from pastoral ministry are increased considerably. But Paul's not just speaking to would-be preachers, is he, here? He's speaking to every believer. He's speaking to every single one of us who, he says, needs to make a sober assessment of who we are so that we might avoid the temptation of making more, of thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. And there are some here today for whom that would be something you probably need to pay attention to. But here's what a corollary is, because he's saying, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought, more highly than you ought. I think that there's a corollary. Don't think more lowly of yourself than you ought to, right? For some of us, inflated self-worth is our problem. For others, deflated self-worth, a deflated sense of worthlessness, that is our problem. I have a friend who, if you can believe this, and a And of course, many of you might. I can't because I didn't grow up in this kind of context. But this friend of mine never heard words of encouragement from her father, ever. She heard put-downs. She heard curses. She heard constant reminders of how useless she was. And she she grew up with this self-image of worthlessness. Paul says, I want you to think of yourself with sober judgment. I want you to think with a measure of faith that God has given me. So it's, a, it's a, a, a fair assessment of who God has created you to be. You need to find your sweet spot. It's kind of like Goldilocks in the three bears. If you try to think too highly of yourself, it's like Papa Bear. That's not good. You think too lowly of yourself, it's like Mama Bear. That's not good. What you need to do is what? Think like Baby Bear. That's just right. It's shameless, I know, but there you go. (laughs) Nobody is indispensable to the work of God, Paul would say. Nobody. Present company, not excluded. Nobody is indispensable to the work of God. He would also say, and nobody is useless either. Nobody is useless. Paul's just getting started here, though, as he's stirring things up. He goes on to say this, that our real identity, our healthy, sweet spot, baby bear, just right sense of who we are, he says it only comes in the context of the church. That's radical. Listen to what he says. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So Paul is describing us. He's describing this, the church, the church of Jesus. And he's saying that each one of us, all of those around you, in front of you, beside you, they are indispensable body parts. That's the word for members. That's what members means. They are indispensable body parts. They, and you all need each other. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul takes this theme and has fun of it. Do you remember that? He, say, he imagines this conversation going on between very body, various body parts. If the thumb were to say to the nose, I wish I was a nose 
as because I'm a thumb, I'm just worthless. Or the, the ear would say to the, the eye or the big toe, I, I'm really a, I have nothing to offer because I'm not who you are. He says, how crazy would it be? We have this image of this huge nose that he portrays for us. It's actually pretty funny. This huge nose is walking all around by itself. Paul says, I want you to have a sober, honest, godly uh, perspective on who you really are and the role that you play in God's kingdom, what your identity is, what your gifts are. And then he says, and these were the words that come right out of the text, then use them. Those gifts that you have uniquely been given, use them. And here's what is revolutionary about this. Dr. Pepper, Burger King, all of the rest say that your true identity comes in your individuality. You're one of a kindness, all by your lonesomeness, unconnected to anyone else or anything else. Paul says the only way that you can truly understand your identity as a Christian is to understand the part that you play in the body of Christ, the membership that you have in the body of Christ. Do you realize how this flies in the face of Americanism, of rugged individualism? Do you realize he dares to say that only when you discover that unique part that you are called to play in the body of Christ, only then will you have a sober, godly understanding of your purpose in life, of your identity in life? Jim Edwards is uh, one of my favorite writers. He's a retired professor at Whitworth, a dear friend. His commentary uh, captures this idea. He writes, The human body is not a unity despite its diversity, but a unity because of its diversity. You get that? And so it is with the church. In God's economy, self-understanding, self-understanding only comes through the inner connectedness of believers where the many members are freed from competing with one another and freed for complementing one another. That's really quite profound. And by the way, that complementing knows how it's spelled. It's not us saying to each other, wow, you're really good at that. This is that complementariness, that, that, the, 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 the togetherness, the complementary nature of the body where you have a part to play, you have a part to play, you have a part to play. If I could point to every one of you, you and you and you, each of us has a particular, special, designed part to play in the body of Christ. And together, when everyone feels their spirit assignment, then we experience a fully functioning body of Christ and the fullness of God's mission among us. Then Paul goes on to give some examples of the kinds of spiritual gifts that are available to us. I would tell you this is not an exhaustive list. You find other lists in Ephesians chapter 4, another list in, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and in other places. But this is one of the lists, and it's not exhaustive, but it contains some really important ones. In fact, as you listen, I might ask you to pay attention and say, I wonder if that's, do I have that? Does that sound like me? The word for gifts, by the way, is charismata. Charismata. What does that sound like? What word does that sound like? Charismatic. The word charis is grace. Mata is gift. So this is gift of grace. What it means then is that every one of us is charismatic. Because every one of us has the, the Holy Spirit. And every one of us who has the Holy Spirit has been given at least one gift 
of grace for the building up of the body. So I'm going to run through those gifts as he lists them here. And pay attention, see which ones might resonate with you. First of all, he talks about prophecy. Or often this leads the list of spiritual gifts. Prophecy is not foretelling the future, it is foretelling God's truth. Sometimes it's the foretelling, but most often it's the person who stands and in whatever situation is able to proclaim the truth of God. Preachers often have that gift. But others have that gift as well, profit. The second one is service, which is very interesting. First of all, the root fruit, the root, (laughs) I have the gift of speaking. The, The root word, the root word is deacon, diakonos. And uh, so this should swell the hearts of, of all the deacons. And I should also point out, isn't it interesting that right after the proclamation of the word of God, the, the list order always matters for Paul. Right after the proclamation of the word as a prophet, we see service. That elevates this, doesn't it? For those of you who, who are deacon-like, who have this longing to help others and have ever wondered how good that is or how, what important it is, Paul puts it right up just below the proclamation of God's word. So prophet, servant, the next one is teacher, the one who exposits in more detail the word of God. Exhort, exhorter. What's that? Well, it's, it's a combo. This is kind of a twofer gift. Exhorters can be encouragers. They recognize when someone needs to be encouraged and lifted up and they're able to speak words of encouragement to them. But the exhorter also has the gift of admonishment because there are sometimes when people need to be, well, you know, kind of kicked a little bit, and the exhorter has the ability to bring all of those together in a way that builds people up. Then he talks about givers. Did you know that for those of you who are just, you, are, you have a sense of generosity, you love to give, that, that might be a spiritual gift from the Lord. Uh, leader. Did you know that some of you who have abilities to lead others, when you, and the, the definition of leadership, by the way, is if there's somebody behind you following you, that makes you the leader. There are some who think they are that are, yeah, no one behind them, probably not much of a leader. But if you have a gift of leadership, it might well be a spiritual gift. And he says, lead with zeal. I think what that means is lead with endurance because leadership is hard. It's easy to get started. It's hard to finish the course. And he says, lead with diligence. Lead with zeal. Keep on if you're called to that. And finally, this wonderful thing. And if, you have, if you're a doer of mercy, he says, do it with cheerfulness. That also might be an interesting thing. Why cheerfulness? Because sometimes, have you ever known people who do acts of mercy and, and they're kind of glum about it and they want to tell you how miserable they are doing all the good things they do? They're kind of mercy martyrs. That he said, that doesn't count. If you're going to be doing acts of mercy and grace, do it cheerfully. Comport yourself with joy and, and, and cheerfulness. I, I, I want you to notice something about these gifts. Not one of them, with the possible exception of some aspect of prophecy, but not one of them would be what we might describe as miracle gifts. Did you see that? And we find those miracle gifts or those sign gifts in other places, especially 1 Corinthians 12, gifts like healing and and tongues and the interpretation of tongues and miracles. And I will tell you that I I believe those still to be valid to this day. Same spirit, same gifts. But for the person who has never experienced a kind of a miraculous visitation of the Holy Spirit, this ought to be an encouragement to you. Because if you're a person who just loves to serve other people, or teach others, or encourage others, or show compassion to others, that is every bit a charismata as the most spectacular sign gifts might be. If you love to give generously to God's work, that is a spiritual gift. If you lead and lead well and lead diligently, that is a spiritual gift. 
And what he says is that every believer has at least one. And what we understand is that no one but Jesus had them all. That's very interesting. Every believer, everyone who has the Spirit has at least one. No one but Jesus had them all. Why do you think Jesus designed his church in that way? So that we would need each other. If no single person is a repository of every spiritual gift, what that means is, I have mine, you have yours, we need each other. And, and I need you too, because you have something that she doesn't have and that I don't have. And you, you have a special combination that none of the three of us have. And so you go right down the line. We do not all have it in ourselves, but together we have all that God would give, all that God requires to fill, all, fulfill all that God wants us to do. We are members, he says, one of another. When you understand this, it changes uh, our understanding of two things uh, about the church. First of all, it changes our understanding of membership. You saw the word member appear again and again and again. And of course, that's talking about those indispensable parts of God's body. If we view church membership as signing on with a religious club that, with whom we mostly agree, how trivializing is that? Something like a religious version of the, of the Rotary Club. They do it better than us. We don't need another one of them. But if we believe that we were created for each other, that God calls us and fits us together perfectly in the part that we are called to play for his body, Chapel Hill, then membership class isn't a recruitment effort. Membership means coming home. It means finding your place. It means moving from the periphery to the core, to the center of everything that's going on. I talked to a woman after service last night. She said, you know, I have been a 20-year membership dodger. A 20-year membership dodger. I said, well, then why don't you come tomorrow? She said, well, when's the next one? I said, don't wait for the next one. Your iron is hot now. <laughs> it won't be hot when the next one comes around. Come tomorrow. After, after the second service, there's going to be a first-step class It's an opportunity for us to share who we are, what we believe, what our mission is, and to ask you to consider, is this a place that God wants you to plug in? If you're visiting here for the first time, if you've been coming for 20 years or more and have never joined for any reason, I wonder if this text, if this understanding of membership might change your perspective on that. And I invite you to come. Find your place in a deeper way with us. I think this passage also changes the way that we look at volunteerism. Your elders are in the midst of an in-depth study of our church. And one of the things that we are discovering, and we're not very happy about it, is that it may never have been harder to recruit volunteers than it is right now. We, we seem to be having greater difficulty recruiting people to work in ministries in the church than ever before. Interestingly, giving is high, But volunteering is low. And what that is saying is that people would rather write a check than give themselves. And don't get me wrong. Like the checks. Keep those checks coming. (laughs) But what Paul is teaching, if it's true, then if all you're doing is writing a generous check, it could be that you are withholding your unique spirit gift, which is essential for the full functioning of the body. And this has to change, beloved. As we're looking to our future as a church, and we are constantly, that's the job of the elders, to be looking to our future. This has to change. 
Even if we can afford it, we cannot continue to depend upon paid staff to do what God has called and gifted each of us to do. And so I want to ask you a simple question. When was the last time you heard for some, some sort of appeal from the pulpit or in the bulletin for some act of service or, or support in the, in the work of the church and said, you know what? I'm not going to assume that he's talking to the person next to me on my left. I'm not going to assume that he's talking to the person on my right. I'm going to assume that he's talking right here, that I got a big bullseye right on my forehead. When was the last time when you heard a call for help that you raised your hand and said, here am I, Lord, send me. Because if you haven't, if there is not some way that you're plugging, if you're part of the 80-20, if you're the 80, if you are not plugging into some aspect of ministry, you don't know what you're missing out on. You're missing out on the sense of connection and purpose and intimacy with the Lord Jesus that comes when you use your unique spirit gifts in the service of the Lord and His church. And having said that, here's something else that we are coming to realize. As a staff and as a session, we have not always made it easy or clear to do this. In fact, even those who want to serve, we've discovered they find it someplace. Sometimes this can be a confusing place to find your way around. And we understand that. So we're working on that. We have a volunteer task force that's tackling this and figuring out ways that we can bring greater clarity because that's what people want. How could this be clearer? If, if I want to use my gifts, can you please make it simple for me? So I'm going to make it simple for you today. Here are four things that are kind of on different gift, giftings. We really need help. And I don't mean the two or three of you that sign up after I ask for something. I would love it if you would flood the Connection Center afterwards and we would have hundreds who would sign up to be a part of this. Here they are, four things. We need help with Alpha. Do you know we had another 80 people show up in our first Alpha on the heels of the one where we started with 140? That's a remarkable thing in the springtime. Fully half of those are people who are not a part of our church and who are exploring faith. Who wouldn't want to be a part of that? And the, and the great thing is, you can come just one Wednesday, help with setup, help with teardown. We're not asking you to teach the lesson. Just come and support us as we try to welcome these people in. So we need help with Alpha. The second thing, we need help with desperately. We need people who are willing to be small group leaders for our children at day camp coming up in June. We will have more than 300 kids who show up here. A huge portion of those are not a part of Chapel Hill and in fact come from unchurched and even unchristian homes. And yet they come here because they know that their children will get good moral upbringing. What we want them to get is Jesus. And we need people who would be willing to sit in groups and love these kids, talk to them, ask questions about that. And may I say this, we need men. I'm not sure where along the history we decided that it was women who were primarily responsible for the spiritual nurture of our children. We have one man signed up to help with day camp. I know that there's more than one retired person out there who happens to be male. It would be wonderful if we had 10 men who said, I want to be a part of it. What greater privilege for a man than to raise up and especially encourage young boys what it means to be a man in Christ. So there's a second option for you. Here's the third. We need ushers and greeters. We need more of them. We need more of them. This is about as easy as it gets. This is the low-lying fruit, low-hanging fruit. Well, lying, you might even just be picking up. Low-hanging, low-lying, whatever. This is fruit. It's easy to get. Ushers, greeters on Sunday mornings. I mean, you're already here. And think of this. You get to boss people around. You can sit here. You can't sit there. Give me your money. I mean, how much better... How much better could it get than that? So we need people who do that. And finally, if you're the person that likes to get the dirt under their fingernails... 
You, you really do your best when you're building something. We need people who would help us with our partner to build furniture at the Northwest Furniture Bank. I would love it if hundreds of... Last, day, last night, we were astounded at the number of people that came afterwards. They set a good, a good tone for us. I would love it if you would flood that table back there afterwards and say, I'm in. Here's how I can help. I'd like to sign up one, one night for Alpha. Let's do this. Let's get the juices flowing. Because we're so used to assuming others will do it, so used to assuming that we will pay someone to do it, we stop realizing that this is my church. This is my responsibility. The Spirit has given me this, these gifts. I've got to use them. I want more of us to do that. When we do that, we're going to be healthier. We're going to be a greater reflection of what the Spirit intends for us to be. We live in a time and in a culture that defines our identity by who we are as individuals. It is revolutionary for us to discover that, in fact, your true identity is defined by who you are as a part of the body of Christ. And this meal that we're going to share in a moment is a reflection of that. We call it Thanksgiving. We call it Eucharist. We call it the Lord's Supper. But we also call it communion, co-union. What do you think we're talking about there? It is a, a, a deepening of the connection, first of all, between us and God because of what Christ has done. But communion, co-union, communion is also about this, about this horizontal relationship with each other. When we come up, when we take the bread, when we take the juice, we are reminding ourselves that I belong to a greater a greater body than myself. And we celebrate that unity that comes when we are worshiping together, working together, serving together with those indispensable body parts, the noses and the ears and the eyes and the spleens that are sitting around you right now. We're going to come now to the Lord's table. And I would love for you to come with that sense. Holy Spirit, fill me anew. Remind me of the call that is upon me and bring me together with you and with my people. Let us come to the table of the Lord.